Hi, I'm Bob Eckblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple, Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. Today I'm speaking to you from Nottingham, UK, where I arrived yesterday afternoon to teach here for Westminster Theological Center, a course on prophetic ministry called Lift Up Your Voice. It's uh, interesting to be here. I've always thought of Nottingham, associating it with, uh, you know, with Robin Hood and his merry men. And in fact, Sherwood Forest is just down the road. And, uh, you know, Robin Hood is someone who's folk hero from born in the 11th, 12th century and known for being um, someone who robbed from the rich and gave to the poor and, you know, was an outlaw who was dressed in green and went around with his bow and arrow, a famous archer, skilled archer who, you know, who battled against uh, the sheriff of Nottingham on behalf of the oppressed. And in many ways, he was like a messianic figure, and he is attractive to many people who who want to see uh, liberation for you know for the poor and the oppressed. And t today, I want to talk about messianic expectation. And you know, clearly, Robin Hood is is not someone that I idealize in his his approach, which uh, you know, which was about the glorification of a certain kind of violence, is not something that I endorse. However, Jesus was in some ways like him in that he was viewed as a sort of outlaw or a guerrilla commander of sorts, but uh, of a nonviolent movement. And we see that Jesus often had to move uh, quickly out of an area because, you know, he was being pursued. And uh, although he didn't allow uh, his pursuers to intimidate him, he just he just did whatever he needed to do, whatever he was called to do. Um, and was very bold in his confrontation with the authorities. You know, Jesus was a person who was under the radar and his followers as well. They were persecuted. And the early church was a movement that um, was rejected and harassed and persecuted by, you know, by the status quo. And I think that's something we need to recover, an understanding, a healthy understanding of, of Jesus's way of promoting the kingdom of God. I have been reading... Um, lately a book all about um, a movement of Christian Reconstructionism. It's a book written by Crawford Gribben, who's a historian from Queen's College in uh, Dublin, Northern Ireland. And this book is called Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America, Christian Reconstruction in the Pacific Northwest. And um, this is a fascinating book that I highly recommend. It's a detailed treatment of a movement that really... Um, I guess, was inspired by a man named Rusas Rushduni, who lived from 1916 to 2001. He was, uh, Rushduni was a Calvinist philosopher, historian, and theologian, the father of Christian Reconstructionism. And uh, his son-in-law, Gary North, also wrote extensively. And one of the things that Rushduni is known for is uh, using the Old Testament law and believing that it should be applied to modern society and there should be a Christian theonomy, in other words, a kind of a legal system and even a theocracy where uh, the government was based on uh, Old Testament law. So he believed and wrote about how penal sanctions of the Old Testament law, such as the death penalty, should be reestablished and death sentences should be into, in effect for things like homosexuality, adultery, incest, lying about one's virginity, bestiality, witchcraft, idolatry, apostasy, 
public blasphemy, false prophecy, kidnapping, rape, bearing false witness in capital cases, things like that. Okay, so he wrote uh, thousands of, of pages of, uh, you know, just documenting all this. And a lot of people have taken it really ser seriously. And there's uh, another writer named James Wesley Rawls, who's written a book called How to Survive the End of the World as We Know It. Tactics, Techniques, and Technologies for an Uncertain Future. And um, this book is really about uh, sort of the coming uh, crisis that um, Rawls believes we're already entering that is uh, somewhat apocalyptic, but there's a belief that actually uh, the we're in a premillennial or postmillennial state where, um, you know, where Christians need to be preparing to kind of reconstruct after whatever crisis we go through here in the, in America and around the world. And um, so anyway, there's things that really trouble me about this approach, which is inspiring a whole movement of people to move to um, Idaho and Washington State, Wyoming, this part of the Pacific Northwest where um, it's viewed as, as sort of a safe haven where people can survive whatever's coming, the, the crisis that's coming, the upheaval, and um, where there's, uh, especially in a place called Moscow, Idaho, there's uh, there's just many, many Christians who are, you know, who are trying to really, in a way, govern the, the city, um, influence the city. And it's it parallels a lot with some of the Seven Mountain um, theology that I, I talked about last week when I critiqued the Watchman Decree although this is from a more Calvinistic perspective. So um, anyway, there's a belief that, uh, you know, that the Bible needs to be, um, that, it, that Christianity is at the, at the origins of Western civilization, so we need to unashamedly, you know, kind of base a whole, our whole uh, civilization or, you know, our, our, our legal system and our, the governing of our nation on, you know, on Scripture. But... Um, the, the way the Old Testament is understood is is what is one of the things that really troubles me. And I want to look at a scripture that I think addresses this, the problem. Um, I mean, there's so many scriptures that we could look at that talk about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament messianic expectation and, and how we can read the Old Testament teachings, uh, you know, the Law and the Prophets, in the light of the resurrected Jesus. I mean, the place I like to go to, first and foremost, is really the Transfiguration, where um, Jesus goes up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured, but he appears with Moses and Elijah, Moses being the, you know, sort of the, the person who's associated with the Pentateuch, with the law, and um, Elijah with the prophets, so sort of the, the Bible, the canon of that time, the law and the prophets. So here's Jesus with the two other sort of Bible um, representatives of, of Old Testament scripture. And Peter wants to build um, a special tent for each of them, like they're all on the same level, like they're all on equal footing. Um, and I, it appears to me that someone like Rosh Duni would maybe see the Old Testament, you know, law and prophets writings um, on the same par as, as, as the gospels and, and the writings, although maybe he doesn't. But, but the way he describes building, um, you know, society on the Ten Commandments makes me, you know, makes him suspect as someone that really doesn't get 
um, you know, how Jesus uh, kind of his interpretation of the Old Testament is is something that is primary and that trumps all other interpretations. So anyway, Jesus is there, and um, when Peter wants them to, he wants to build a tent for each of them. That's when um, the spotlight comes on to just Jesus, and a voice from heaven says, "This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him." Okay, so Jesus um, listening to him is a priority, and um, also we see in the in the Emmaus Road story in Luke twenty four how um, the disciples, two of Jesus' disciples, are traveling uh, towards this town called Emmaus after Jesus has been reputedly raised from the dead, like, I guess it's on the third day. or um, And they're disturbed, and Jesus, is they don't recognize him, and he's discussing, he asks them what they're discussing, and they talk about how they were discussing how they had had hopes that he was the Messiah that was going to deliver Israel. But, yeah, just how they were disappointed, and but how there's there's reports from women that he's been seen as resurrected, and and that's when Jesus uh, rebukes them really and says, you know, how they're slow of heart to understand, um, you know, the the law and the prophets, and he interprets the law and the prophets uh, regarding how the Messiah was to suffer before entering his glory, and 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 later they describe their hearts burning as he took them through the law and the prophets. And wow, would I ever love to have been there and heard that, um, you know, that way of interpreting those scriptures. But we, we see it everywhere in the Gospels, and we can we can study with Jesus as our rabbi. Um, let's look um, at a scripture from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. And uh, what I'm going to do is look at this scripture and compare it a little bit with the, the Matthew version. And, um, and just look at the story of the rich young ruler as um, regarding what it says and what it doesn't say about how the law, uh, you know, can and should be used, the Mosaic law. So as Jesus was setting out on a journey, I love this, Jesus is on the move, and uh, a man ran up to him and, then, and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So um, this man addresses Jesus as a good teacher, He's not addressing him as the son of God or as the Messiah, but as a teacher, as like a rabbi. And um, the man runs up and he wants to know um, what he has to do to inherit eternal life. So this is language similar to the kingdom of God, which we're going to see that's how Jesus interprets it. And so uh, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Um, and so, of course, Jesus is God, but Jesus is calling the guy out on uh, and letting us know as readers that that this is an issue, that he's appear, approaching Jesus as a teacher. So, you know, um, the tendency that we have, I think, sometimes is just to look for teaching to base our lives on. And this man wants a teaching. He wants to know what he has to do um, and what Jesus as a teacher is going to tell him is um, is something that in some ways, seems to support Raj Dooney's approach. But let's check it out in verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Okay, now it's interesting. There's a number of commandments there. That, that's not all 10 of the commandments. And um, in the Matthew version of it, it's, uh, it's different. You know, Jesus... Uh, 
Jesus says to the um, to the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 verse 17 um, that there's only one who is good um, but if you wish to enter life into life if you wish to enter into life keep the commandments um, I love that actually it's like if you wish to enter into life keep the commandments then he the rich young ruler said to him which ones and then Jesus directly answers him Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus add, adds that in Matthew's version. And um, anyway, the man, in going back to Mark, uh, said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Okay, So here's someone that is uh, basing their life on the Ten Commandments right, um, on the law of Moses from his youth. And um, Matthew's gospel says the same thing. So Jesus affirms the importance of keeping the Ten Commandments as leading to life and responds to the man's question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life by naming these commandments, although there's just a summary of the original ten in, first, in Exodus 21 to 17. And then in Matthew's version, the addition of the one from Leviticus on loving your neighbor as yourself. And there's no mention of any sanctions, certainly no mentions of any uh, death penalty sanctions like you'd have in, in Rosh Dhuni's uh, writings. But rather, this is all about uh, practices that lead to life. And the man claims all these things he has observed, and yet apparently that's not enough. And the man's awaiting you know, a further um, command, I guess, from Jesus. And um, looking at him, verse 21, Jesus felt love for him. I love that. It's just so beautiful, this, this version in Mark. And said to him, one thing you lack, you know, one thing you lack. Go sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. So Jesus clearly is not about um, holding up and preparing for how to survive the end of the world as we know it, um, you know, following along James Wesley Rawls' approach. And it doesn't look like Jesus is encouraging people to go off and, and be survivalists and prepare for whatever the coming, um, you know, passing through the, the tribulation or the crisis in order to be reconstructionists. And um, rather, Jesus is, um, is telling him, Look, sell everything. Uh, become less secure. You know, don't stockpile food, weapons. Uh, you know, uh, you know, don't just try to prepare yourself just to survive as a um, in your family unit and your your faith community, which is what's happening in in Idaho and and parts of Washington. There's so many, so many. I mean, thousands of people moving from uh, all over the United States to these areas. And um, holding up and, and trying to establish like a th different versions of, of a theocracy or, or trying to, you know, I mean, there's, there's great diversity of how people are preparing. And so I don't want to oversimplify it. And that's one of the brilliant um, aspects of, of the book that I just brought up, Crawford Gribben's book, is that he is quite fair and uh, interviews people and lets them speak about what they're doing and why they're doing it in their own voices. And he shows how there's not just one 
dominant viewpoint. There's, there's, there's a lot of diversity in the movements that are happening there. But uh, maybe what they all do have in common is, you know, is this Christian reconstructionism of, of some version of it. And, um, and also of just preparing uh, through making themselves more secure. So Jesus invites the rich young ruler to become less secure, to sell everything and to give it to the poor. Okay, just give it to the poor. So straight up, uh, you know, different than Robin Hood, uh, Jesus isn't robbing from the rich to give to the poor, but he's uh, calling the rich to sell what they have and to give it to the poor. So he's uh, really about a movement of the heart, isn't he? And Jesus is doing it from a place of love, of loving this rich man. And um, and then he, he says, you'll have treasure in heaven. And he's not talking about the earth right there. He's talking about uh, the next age, you know, treasure in heaven. And and then he's saying, come, follow me, because Jesus was on on the move. And uh, where was he heading? Well, eventually to Jerusalem where he was crucified. So Jesus wasn't going out away from trouble, you know, to the... Um, to the rate redoubt, the great redoubt, they call it this area of Washington, Idaho and Wyoming, Montana, you know, where people can find refuge. But Jesus is heading straight into conflict, into trouble. Um, he's going to the cross, and which is what he says is the destiny of his followers, that if they persecuted me, how much more will they persecute those who follow me? So Jesus invites him to go on a journey, not to not to settle down and hunker down. Um, at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Um, anyway, that's that's sad, but in a way, maybe very powerful, because grieving is not considered a negative thing in Scripture, but a positive thing, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So perhaps this man saw his inability to save himself through works, and he went away recognizing that he couldn't save himself. So interestingly, um, let's look at how the disciples responded to this. So um, in Matthew, Matthew's version, Matthew 19, 23, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, well, why is that the case? I mean, like, what constitutes a rich person? Um, you know, clearly a rich person is someone who is amassing wealth to, uh, to care for themselves, to be able to cover their own needs. Amassing wealth, material possessions, you know, becoming secure through their own means. And Jesus is saying it's really hard for someone to enter the kingdom of God that way. It's not about um, power. It's not about, about a power uh, an amassing of wealth and influence. It's not about the seven, the seven mountain mindset. It's really about um, leaving all that and following and, and being maybe more vulnerable and fragile and a stranger and an alien, a pilgrim. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. And they said, then who can be saved? They were assuming that wealth and security were a sign of God's favor you know, they were more in the prosperity gospel mindset. And so the idea that um, a rich man couldn't be saved, that's like saying someone who looks like they're saved isn't saved. Um, someone that looks like they're from a powerful, you know, um, influential, successful place, uh, you can't 
assume that that represents the blessing of God. You know, I think one of the dangers of sort of a hyper-sovereignty mindset that is present in, in certain Calvinistic circles is the assumption is that everything is God's will and, and, and that God is just. So if the rich are powerful and rich, it's is it because God is it's God's will? If they're Christians, that would be assumed. But here, the will of Jesus is that this person sell everything and, and follow him. Um, so anyway, Jesus, uh, it responds to these disciples who are perplexed, uh, who say, then, who can be saved by, by looking at them and saying to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Um, that's so beautiful, isn't it? it it's like, um, look, we can't save ourselves. So don't think it's about you know following a particular code of conduct or a particular legal system or a particular understanding of the Old Testament or the New Testament or anything. We're not saved that way. Um, it's impossible for us to be saved uh, through our own works. Uh, but with God, all things are possible, even for this rich man who Jesus loved and for us and for Rosh Duni and his followers, and for uh, the, the, the writers and the uh, adherents of the Watchman Decree, and uh, the Christian Reconstructionists, and you know whoever, the liberals, the progressives, the conservatives. Um. So let's look now at Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will be there for us? So here, these are guys that are probably not following that um, James Wesley Rawls approach of just uh, holding up and getting ready to be survivors. These are people that have followed Jesus, and Jesus is their everything. And they're all about completely trusting and seeking first the kingdom and righteousness and experiencing all these things being given to them. And... Um, so anyway, Jesus said to them, verse 28, Truly I say to you that you who followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you will also sit upon the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so um, this is kind of some of the language of the Christian Reconstructionists. There's an assumption that, that the church is God's governing body and um, and you know Christians need to seize the moment. and um, But Jesus here does talk about a time when that will happen, when Jesus' own disciples will sit on his glorious throne, and they will, um, oh, he'll, Jesus will sit on his glorious throne, they will sit upon the 12 thrones, judging the tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. And, and this is described in, as in the regeneration. Well, when is the regeneration? Well, interestingly, there's there's only one other time in the New Testament where regeneration occurs, and it's in Titus, um, and it has nothing to do with any kind of like the kingdom of God in terms of a you know a future time, um, you know in the restoration of all things. It's it's actually uh, used in the term washing of regeneration and uh, renewing by the Holy Spirit. So it's kind of almost like a synonym for baptism. And um, in the Septuagint version, the Greek version of the Old Testament, this term, um, which is palingenesin, uh, never occurs, or excuse me, palingenesia, that term regeneration, um, it, this is the only time it occurs in a way that refers to 
you know, sort of a future time when people might reign with Jesus. So it's not talking about um, a time in the near future here on the planet where anyone's going to rule, you know, from the seven mountains or in some kind of Christian theocracy. Um, interesting, Jesus uh, identifies this rich young ruler's aspirations, which are, um, you know, he wants to know what he can do to inherit eternal life. He identifies that as entering into um, the kingdom of God, right? He says, um, he says to them, I truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, um, then we see that the kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God. Um, because right after that, he says, again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God are synonyms. And they're associated with uh, inheriting eternal life. So we're talking about a time that is post-death, uh, you know, right? It's on the other side of death. It's on the other side of the end of history, I believe. And uh, even though everything that we're doing now is intimately associated with it, we're not talking about something that's going to be progressively established uh, through the church gaining influence. We're talking about something that is going to come as part of the new heaven and the new earth as I talked about later or earlier in a previous podcast. So um, how do we come to this point of really recognizing Jesus as uh, God's Messiah, as the, as the Israel's Messiah and the world's Messiah Savior? You know, his identity, his identity as Christ was something that um, some of his disciples really, I mean, his disciples did affirm. And there's this really interesting text from Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus comes to Peter and says, who do people say that I am? And he gives the different answers, you know. Um, but then he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And um, in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of a living God. So there we have that dual affirmation of Jesus being both the Christ, the Messiah, the awaited one, and also being God himself, you know, the son of a living God which is what is so special, so unique about the Christian understanding of Jesus as being both Son of God and Messiah. Um, so his being Christ means that, uh, you know, for Peter and for the early church, these first Christians, and for us, uh, being Christ means affirming that Jesus is Christ, is believing that Jesus is the one who, uh, who establishes the kingdom of God, and conquers the power of death and destroys the rule and the reign of the ruler of this world um, through the means that he used, which were to humble himself and you know to empty himself and uh, take on the form of a servant and become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, um, it's that it's that winning through losing. You know that that is what uh, Jesus models for us, and he shows us that this is the same path for us. And uh, Jesus says to Simon, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Okay, this isn't something that is just revealed through having a teacher. Um, it's um, not something that you just get through taking the right theology classes or the right Bibles, doing the right Bible studies. Really confessing that Jesus is the Christ requires revelation. You know, um, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father 
who is in heaven. Okay, so this is what is essential, is that um, we need the revelation through the Holy Spirit. Um, we also see 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, it says, and no one can say Jesus is Lord. In other words, Jesus is, is Yahweh or the God of the Old Testament. You know, Lord, that word kurios is the Greek equivalent of the tetragram, the Hebrew term that is for the divine name. And so nobody can say Jesus is, is God, is, is, is the Lord himself, the God of the Old Testament, except by the Holy Spirit. And um, flesh and blood does not reveal that Jesus is the Christ. And I think this is, this is really the problem with a lot of this Reconstructionist, Christian Reconstructionist movement is they, these are people that need to get that revelation, um, as all of us do over and over again, that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, and his way of, of, of winning is through the cross. And as I mentioned in a previous podcast, I believe the gift the spiritual gift of word of wisdom is uh, it's a revelatory gift where through that spiritual gift that comes through the Holy Spirit, we get the revelation that we need to understand uh, the meaning of the cross and its significance and how it is that, that, that Jesus wins uh, over the powers of, of death and over the principalities and powers and brings us into eternal life through you know, his uh, death and on the cross and his resurrection. Jesus then goes on in the next verses to talk about a kind of authority, a kind of governmental authority that Peter will be given that is based on this revelation that Jesus is the Christ and he's the son of a living God. The revelation, the special revelation that um, was not apparent to everybody and that doesn't just come through establishing it in a political way, which is perhaps why... Um, you know, Jesus is going to tell us in his last words in this section, um, he's warns his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. So let's just look at this, verse 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So this looks to me like um, Peter is given spiritual authority, and that is offered to the church. And uh, and so the gates of Hades aren't even going to be able to overpower, you know, the the victorious kingdom of God that is rooted in this confession that is uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That He's the Son of a living God. This revelation that comes from God. You know, it's the Father in heaven who gave that revelation. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the revelation that Jesus is Lord. You know, when we when we understand that, we're, we're understanding a, a, another way of operating in the world that is different than 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 this world. You know, and and we 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 see this in in what Jesus says to his disciples. You know, um, about the nations in in Matthew chapter twenty. You know, when uh, the sons of, 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 of Zebedee, you know, they come to Jesus and, you know, with the mother and they want to be at his right hand and his left hand when, you know, when he goes into his kingdom, even though he has just said, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he'll be raised up. 
Okay, that's, you know, Matthew 20, 18 and 19. And, um, and so then Jesus, um, in response to the disciples being upset because these sons of Zebedee have asked for special, you know, kind of ruling status in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over, to, over them. You know, he calls the disciples to himself and he says that to them. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, of the non-Jews, lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. It is not this way among you. It's not going to be about the Ten Commandments and having a rule of law based on the Old Testament where, where the church is going to govern the world. No. But whoever wishes to become great among you should be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you should be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is something we just need to, we need to get ourselves more familiar with the way of Jesus so that we can respond to um, some of this dominion, dominionist theology and this uh, theonomy and theocracy talk that is, is just more and more common these days and, and, and really dangerous and divisive in the body of Christ. So um, anyway, I encourage you to look at that Crawford Gribbons uh, book and to just prayerfully read through the Gospels, asking uh, the Holy Spirit to really show you how Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and, and the Savior of the world, and how he you know, goes about that in his um, unique and beautiful um, way as, um, as God's most total revelation.